The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30. You just heard the scripture read. <clears throat> the timeless allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, depicts the journey of a man from being lost, living in the city of destruction, through faith in Jesus Christ, and then through many dangers, toils, and snares, finally to crossing the river of death to live forever in the celestial city, an allegory of the entire Christian life. Now, the author, John Bunyan, wrote it to instruct Christians about many aspects of the Christian life. And in the allegory, the main character, a man named Christian, early in his pilgrimage, spends time in the home of a man named Interpreter. And in that man's home, he sees many symbolic vignettes, scenes that teach him important lessons that he's going to need for his journey. Probably of all of the vignettes he sees in Interpreter's house, the most sobering, even terrifying, that he was shown was a very dark room with a forlorn man locked in an iron cage. Now, this man's in a desperate condition. Because he's convinced that he has sinned his way out of heaven and there is nothing he can do at this point to be saved. He has in some way committed the unpardonable sin. So in the dialogue that happens, Christian asks him, what are you? The man says, I was once a fair and flourishing Christian both in my own eyes and in the eyes of others. I was convinced that I was going to the celestial city. Christian says to him, that's good. What are you now? The man answers, I am now a man of despair. I am shut up in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, I cannot. Christian asked him, how did you come into this condition? The man answered, I stopped being careful about watching over my soul. I gave free reign to my sin. I sinned against the light of the word and against the goodness of God. I have grieved the Holy Spirit and he is gone. I have tempted the devil and he has come. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot turn. Christian then asked him, is there no hope? but that you must be kept in this iron cage of despair. The man answered, no, none at all. Christian said, why? The son of the blessed is very merciful. But the man wailed, I have crucified him to myself all over again. I have despised his person. I have despised his holiness. I have considered his blood an unholy thing. I have shown contempt to the spirit of mercy. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises of God, and there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery anger, which will devour me as an enemy. Christian asked, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? The man answered, for the desires, pleasures, and gains of this world, in the enjoyment of which I promised myself 
much delight, but now every one of them bites me like a burning worm. Christian asked, but can you not even now turn to God? The man cried out, God no longer invites me to come to him. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. God himself is the one who shut me in this cage. And no one in the world can let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity. How shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Now, this is one of the most sobering and terrifying portions of Pilgrim's Progress. And it raises the question of the unpardonable sin. Uh, That is a topic that's raised for us in this text today that we're studying in Mark's Gospel. Raised by a statement made to Jesus Christ to his enemies. A sin that can never be forgiven in this age or even out into eternity. Look at verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So the question that's in front of us today is, first and foremost, is there an unforgivable sin? Now, in some measure, this is surprising to us considering the wideness of the mercy of God. Jesus himself in this very passage asserted the width of God's amazing mercy. Look at verse 28. He's, truly I say to you, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. It's an incredible statement. Jesus begins it with a solemn oath. Sometimes translated, I tell you the truth or truly I say to you. The Greek is amen. Jesus often used this word, frequently doubling it, such as amen, amen, which is truly, truly, something like that. Though everything Jesus said is worthy of close attention, when Jesus says this kind of thing, we're to pay special attention to the thing that he's saying. Pay very close attention. And he's asserting here in verse 28, the width and breadth and depth of God's commitment to forgive sinners. Truly I say to you, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. And we know from other scriptures, Jesus came into the world to forgive sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Many scriptures testify to the wideness of God's amazing grace and mercy. Psalm 103 verse 10 says he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Two verses later in that same psalm it says as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Beautifully in Micah chapter 7 18 and 19 it says who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance you do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So the amazing track record of God's forgiveness stands for all time. Abraham's lying is forgiven. Moses' murder is forgiven. David's lust and adultery and blood guilt, all forgiven. Jonah's rebellion, his defiance in running the opposite direction from the will of God for his life, forgiven. Even it seems King Manasseh, the most wicked king of Judah, 
who sacrificed his own son in the lineage of David to the god Molech, burning him in the fire. Forgiven. It's incredible what God will forgive. Augustine, forgiven for his years of pattern of fornication. Forgiven. Luther, forgiven for his his blasphemy, where he said to his father confessor, love God, I hate him. Forgiven. John Newton, forgiven for his slave trading and for his dissolute drunken life and his blasphemy. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Heaven's going to be filled with repentant adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and liars and thieves and murderers. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We should all be staggered and amazed at the first part of Jesus' statement. That all manner of sins and blasphemies will be forgiven men. We should not read that universally as though Jesus is speaking of universalism, that everyone will be forgiven. He's not saying that, but what he's saying is there is no category of sin that cannot receive forgiveness. There is hope of forgiveness for all of those categories of sin. So that's amazing. But once that you take that in, the amazement swings the other way. It seems very stunning, therefore, that there could be a sin that God would not forgive, ever. But Jesus clearly asserts here there is such a sin, an unpardonable sin. Look at verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Matthew's parallel account expands it a little bit, Matthew 12, 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I think no one in history has been as spoken against as Jesus Christ. I don't know how many times on planet Earth in a single day his name is taken in vain. Somebody smashes their thumb with a hammer and out comes Jesus Christ, not as a prayer or a worship, but just as a swear. It's a river of blasphemy gone toward Jesus Christ. Jesus said he's willing to forgive all that. It's incredible. But he said blasphemy against the Spirit is a sin that will never be forgiven, even into eternity. In our text it says, he says he is guilty of an eternal sin. Human beings frequently overstate the level of their commitment to never forgive, never forget. They're so filled with rage over something that's happened. But then they later, things happen, they change their mind, and they, and they give up on such a, a pledge. But God's not like that. If he says a sin will never be forgiven into eternity, it won't. It's more permanent than if it were engraved with a steel stylus on a slab of granite. It's never going to be forgiven. God's not going to later change his mind. The verdict is final. So the answer to the first question must be as we read the text, yes, there is such a sin as an unforgivable sin. All right, second question, what is that unforgivable sin? And the answer from the text is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, what is that then? Well, blasphemy is verbal sin. It's something you say. Jesus makes it plain. In this case, the issue is it's something that flows from a heart state, a heart conviction up out of the mouth. It's the, the mouth reflects the condition of the heart. 
Listen to the words in Matthew 12. He said, I saw, uh, verse 31 through 37. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the, uh, sorry, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken for by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned it's the full account tied to the same matter the same issue the same incident Jesus said it because of the words spoken about his ministry by the scribes the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem to evaluate what was going on with Jesus Remember they came down, they're evaluating, they heard about him, they wanted to see it with their own eyes and make, render a, 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 an authoritative evaluation about Jesus. And this was their verdict, Mark 3.22, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Beelzebub is Satan, and so by the power of Satan, he's driving out demons. So Jesus responds... I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Then the clear explanation that Mark gives us, verse 30, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. That's the reason why he said it. Now, the central issue here are Jesus' miracles. The scribes were asserting that Jesus was doing miracles specifically, especially exorcisms, driving out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus had been doing a river of signs and wonders and and amazing healings. The best summary I found is in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4.24, where it says, news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them, all of them. Now, by far the most spectacular healings were of demon-possessed people. The demons would often make a big scene when they would come out. Uh, They would scream. They would cause the human being to foam at the mouth, to writhe on the ground. It was spectacular and evil. So it's obvious as you're watching that something very powerful is happening. And people were forming opinions about him as these miracles were happening. The healings, but especially the exorcisms. So after driving out a a demon from a young man in the synagogue in Capernaum, the people said, Mark 127, they're all so amazed, asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And so they're evaluating, who is this man? How does he have this power? So next chapter after the stilling of the storm, Mark 4.41, his disciples were terrified and they were asking each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
Mark 6, in his hometown, people watched him growing up. Where did this man get all these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? In Herod's court, same chapter, Mark 6, King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Jesus himself will ask his own disciples this key question. What about you? Who do you say I am? So as I said last week, this is the most significant question, the most significant issue they will ever face or any of us will ever face. And it's clear that, that his ministry is designed to move people to the point where they can confess his deity. To confess he is the son of God. On what basis? Will they do that? Jesus makes, therefore, many varied, overt claims to deity. Not one or two, many of them. For example, uh, he claimed the power to forgive sins. Whole lifetime of sins by the paralyzed man. Didn't know him, had never met him. Said to him, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Just like that. And his enemies put their finger on it and said, "Who who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, like that. Jesus claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, something only God would ever say. Lord of the Sabbath. Later in John's gospel, he would say, before Abraham was born, I am. Any Jewish person knew very well what Jesus was claiming there. There's no doubt about it. He's claiming to be God. All right, you're you're making this incredible claim. On what basis would I believe that? Well, on the basis of the miracles. That's the answer. That's Scripture's answer. On the basis of the miracles... We will testify to the deity of Christ, to the salvation of our souls. So with the paralyzed man, he said, Mark chapter 2, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and walked out, in full view of them all. So here's the logic. Because I do this miracle, you will know I have the authority to forgive sins. Miracle equals authority to forgive sins, salvation for us. Uh, Jesus also acknowledged that the signs and wonders were essential. They were necessary to our faith. Jesus said in John 4, 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Again in John chapter 5, Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he called God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in John 5, he gives a, a bunch of his credentials. He goes through John the Baptist's testimony, other things. And then he said this, I have testimony, John 5, 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work the Father has given me to do, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. What is the work? Miracles and teachings. In other words, the miracles give us proof that Jesus is equal to God. To his own disciples, the night before he was crucified, he said the same thing. John 14, 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. That we're one. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. That's the clearest statement you're going to find. The, the miracles give us evidence to testify to the deity of Christ. And then as we say almost every week, the culminating statement in John's gospel, John 20. Verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other, what? miraculous signs which are not recorded in this book but these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and believing you may have life in his name it's not just the words in general it's the miracles 
for our salvation, God ordained that Jesus would do all of these miracles. And the miracles are the basis of our faith in the deity of Christ to the salvation of our souls. Now, the two central, essential miracles that you must believe to be saved are the incarnation and the resurrection. They're essential to our salvation. The incarnation, that Jesus was God in human body, and that the resurrection, that he was raised physically from the dead, are essential. So, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, here's the key to this whole issue today. All of the miracles connected with Jesus are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of them. There are no exceptions. Some of you may be surprised. I hadn't really worked this through. But do you think there was a single miracle Jesus ever did apart from the will and command of his father? Never. Well then, was there any miracle Jesus ever did with his father and left the Holy Spirit out? What do you think? No. And so it actually isn't that hard to get there, but the Bible teaches it. For example, the incarnation. It was the Holy Spirit And his unique power on Mary's body that enabled the incarnation to happen. Remember how she said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered in Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Holy Spirit directly bringing about the incarnation. And then at the end, the resurrection also ascribed openly to the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 1.4, it speaks about Jesus, who as to his human nature was the descendant of David, the human, humanity of, of Jesus, but was raised through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You're not used to the phrase, spirit of holiness. More common name, Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he was declared with power, proclaimed to the world to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, the greatest miracle of Jesus' life. Both of them, both the beginning and the end, miracles, work by the power of the Holy Spirit. But all the other miracles in between also work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter testified to Cornelius in Acts 10.38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. So Jesus is going around setting people free from the devil by the power of the Holy Spirit, healing them, exercising demons by the power of the Spirit, rescuing them from Satan's dark clutches. Specifically, Relevant to this issue, Jesus claimed overtly to be driving out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. He said in Mark 12, 27, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? Very interesting question. So how's that whole exorcism going before I came? So then they will be your judges, Matthew 12, 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's clear evidence of the advancing kingdom of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. The scribes looked at all this evidence. They looked right at it with their own eyes. They watched it happening. 
And what was their conclusion? It is by Satan's power that he is driving out demons. Could not have been further from the truth. The blasphemy of the, of, against the Spirit then is to look at all the evidence of the, that the Spirit has given for the deity of Christ, his signs and wonders, and then willfully and maliciously to choose to ascribe that power to Satan. That's the blasphemy against the Spirit. Now Jesus said it would be a sin that never, would never be forgiven. Not in this age or the age to come. Now you may say, why not? Why not? Why wouldn't it be forgiven? Well, because there was nothing else that God was going to do to prove the identity of his son. It's as though God, through the Holy Spirit, is, is turning over cards, revealing cards. And he reveals the whole set and steps back and says, all right, here it is. What do you think? What's your conclusion? End of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen says... Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. All right, that's what you get. Here it is. This is the full set of the evidence God's going to give. What's your conclusion? And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, could someone in space and time have committed this sin and then still live many years on earth without any hope of forgiveness, no chance of forgiveness whatsoever? The answer is yes, it seems so. I'm not saying they knew that that was their condition, but I'm I'm saying it is possible to commit that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and then live a while after that completely apart from the grace of God and any hope of forgiveness of sins. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 32, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So the dreadful and terrifying conclusion is that there were people who did commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and who then walked in unforgiveness for the rest of their lives. Now why? It's because God would not work in them. Because he's not going to send the Holy Spirit to save them. Essential to our salvation is repentance, repentance of our sins. And that repentance cannot be in any single person ever except by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. The time has come, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by your free will. Your free will was a slave. It was the Holy Spirit that set you free if you're a Christian. And so God will not work that. It says in Acts eleven eighteen. so then God has granted even to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Do you see that? God grants repentance. God grants faith. These are gifts of God. And he works them by the Spirit. Specifically repentance. It says in John 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's unique and beautiful work. But if the person is describing all of Jesus' miracles to Satan, there is no further work the Spirit will do. They're willfully rejecting all the work of the Spirit pointing toward Christ as the Son of God. All right, third point. How should we live in light of this teaching? In light of the concept of the unforgivable sin. Can anyone commit this sin today? Answer, I don't really know. 
There are different commentators who say different things. Like, pastor, you're not ever supposed to say, I don't really know. Especially not an important question like this one. It may be that this sin was unique to that moment. To literally seeing with your own eyes the physical miracles being done. Seeing many of them, a river of miracles, and then concluding that Jesus was doing all of that by the power of Satan. However, we do read in the book of Hebrews about the apostates there in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. He says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back again to repentance because to their loss they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. When I preached through the book of Hebrews, I had to ponder this very important teaching very carefully. Many people are deeply troubled by it, Hebrews 6. I struggled especially with the words, it is impossible. So taking all the words out and just simplifying, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. They're not going to get, it's impossible to bring them to repentance. I struggle with that, especially in light of a statement Jesus makes in, in another place in Mark's gospel, Mark ten twenty seven, talking about the salvation of the rich. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and they say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. So when you get with God, all things are possible, connected to salvation. But then the author of Hebrews is saying, it's impossible to bring them to I found that troubling. How do you put that together? But it does make sense, however, if God himself is telling you he will not work in those people, then we know it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. God, with God's working, all things are possible. But suppose God says, yes, but I'm not working in these cases. I'm not going to work. What do you think? Then they're not going to be saved. Now, the Hebrew people of that era had also physically seen signs and wonders in the apostolic age. In Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, it says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the apostles, after Jesus ascended to heaven, did similar miracles to Jesus. These people, the, the, this Hebrew congregation, had seen those apostolic miracles and we're in that, therefore, possibility of the same condition concerning blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So perhaps blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is limited to the era of Christ and the apostles when the miracles are flowing by the power of the Holy Spirit. But later in the book of Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 10, 26-29, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins remains, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctify him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Did you hear that? Insulted the Spirit of grace. So, it seems at least that the Holy Spirit wants to give us, readers of the book of Hebrews, a sense of lasting warning that's essential to our salvation. We need to drink in that warning in a healthy way and take it seriously. Sin is dangerous, dear brothers and sisters. It is dangerous. It is deadly dangerous. 
And we never know how much we can play with it in our daily lives and reach a breaking point where the Spirit will not convict us and bring us back. Now, John Piper, in talking about this issue of blasphemy against the Spirit, basically said on this topic, bottom line is run from sin with fear and trembling. Run from sin with fear and trembling. This is what he wrote. The fact that there is an unforgivable sin, that there comes a point in life in a life of sin after which the Holy Spirit will no longer grant repentance, that fact should drive us from sin with fear and trembling. None of us knows when our toying with sin will pass over into irrevocable hardness of heart. Very few people feel how serious sin really is. Very few people are on the same wavelength with Jesus when he said in Mark 9, 43, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Many professing Christians today have such a sentimental view of God's justice that they never feel terror and horror at the thought of being utterly forsaken by God because of their persistence in sin. They have the naive notion that God's patience has no end and that they can always return from any length and depth of sin, forgetting that there is a point of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power, leaving them never able to repent and be forgiven. They are like the buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. He lands and begins to eat. He knows it is dangerous because the falls are just ahead. But he looks at his own wings and says to himself, I can fly to safety in an instant. And he goes on eating. Just before the ice goes over the falls, he spreads his wings to fly, but his claws have been frozen into the ice. And there is now no escape neither in this age nor the age to come. The spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever, end quote. All right, so the bottom line for me as a pastor today on this topic is, as has been said many times before, to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, as I said in my pastoral prayer, some of you have some needs and other of you have diametrically opposed needs. How one sermon can meet both needs is a mystery that's beyond my ability to comprehend. I have had probably five or six conversations with troubled souls on blasphemy against the Spirit in my ministry. People come to pastors on this question frequently, and they're worried. Have I committed this unforgivable sin? I would say my pastoral instincts are almost nobody, I can't imagine a person being deeply concerned that they've committed that sin, that they actually have committed that sin. I don't see the scribes of Jerusalem deeply concerned about Jesus' words, do you? So now we come to just the issue of how do I attain to a healthy assurance of my own salvation? That's the question, isn't it? It's not so much the arcane question of theology of blasphemy against the spirit. The question is, the health of our own souls, will I be there in heaven forever feasting with Jesus or not? Or will I hear those terrifying words when I say to him, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, and I get the biggest shock of my life. 
That's the question that's in front. Not so much this question exegetically about blasphemy against the spirit, but the question is, how do I arrive or attain to a healthy assurance of my own salvation? Therefore, I think we have to go to the theology of salvation and understand some key factors here, which I've said again and again. Salvation comes to us in stages. The first stage is justification, forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future by simple faith in Jesus Christ. You must never let up on that conviction. Forgiveness of sins comes by coming to the cross with faith and trusting in Jesus, not by any good works you can do. But then secondly, salvation, true justification, always then produces sanctification, a journey of holiness in which you and the Holy Spirit work together on your actual thinking patterns and behavior patterns. And assurance happens in there. How can I know I'm justified by faith? What's going on with your sanctification? That's how the Bible does it. What's happening in your life? And so assurance of salvation starts with simple faith in Christ. Like the thief on the cross. Can you by faith know you deserve to die? You are a sinner. If it weren't for Jesus, you would die. And you look over to Jesus with the eyes of faith and say, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm trusting in you. You will be forgiven. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But that's only part of the answer. Secondly, is fruit. What's the fruit of your life? What's happening in your life? And the Bible presents negative fruit and positive fruit. So negatively, are you putting sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit? We all battle sin, but this is what I think Paul means when he says at the end of his life, with some relief, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. It's a marathon race of fighting. What do you think you're fighting? You're fighting sin by the power of the Spirit. So, Romans 8, sorry, Romans, no, Romans 8, 13, uh, 14 says, if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So you have to fight sin by the power of the Spirit. You have to mortify sin. Wherever there's sin in your life, wherever it is, you've got to be assaulting it, killing it by the Spirit. That's negative. Positively, do you see Christ-like attributes growing in your life? What the the theologians call the graces of Christ positively growing in your life, such as the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see love, Christ-like love growing in your life? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These virtues, positive virtues developing in you. Negatively, killing sin by the Spirit. Positively, Christian graces growing in you. And then just actions. Just lifestyle actions. Evangelism, prayer, Christian giving, attendance at worship, the various commands of the Christian life. You're just obedient by the Spirit to the Christian life. That's how you'll have assurance. If those things aren't happening in your life, I can't give you assurance and be a good pastor. I would say you need to see these things in your life. That's where you get assurance. Finally, is there a role of a healthy fear of sin in the Christian life? I think so, yeah. Right before I came up here, I looked up just to be sure it's not in my outline. But 2 Corinthians 7.1 It tells us to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Friends, that's in the New Testament. So please don't tell me perfect love dries out fear and there is no fear and then the Holy Spirit, like if you have any fear, something's wrong with you. 
I don't know how you can say that and then have these other verses. There is most certainly a healthy fear of sin. Conversely, it is very unhealthy to say, I have no fear of what sin can do in my life. Well, what would you do if a brother or sister ever said that to you? Oh, that's so good. I wish I could get to that place in my life. No, that's not what you would ever say. It's like, I fear for you. And so I feel to some degree we're all brought back in some healthy way to Mount Sinai with the fire and the earthquake and all of that and this terror. And then God says to the Israelites, do not be afraid. God has come to you to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. How can that not be a covenant work, a new covenant work by the Spirit? He works a healthy fear of sin in us so that we won't sin. And yeah, that's part of the Christian life. So, Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, if today you hear his voice, the Holy Spirit says this, if today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then as he says a few verses later in Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So it is important for us to be vigilant on our souls that we not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And if any of you have heard the gospel time and time again and still have not yet repented and trusted in Christ, let me ask you a question. How many more chances do you think the Holy Spirit is going to give you? You've heard the gospel today. I'm pleading with you. Do not presume on a future day. Repent now while there's time. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the, the word of God that gives us sweet hope and joy, but also necessary warnings and fear. And I pray, O oh Lord, that this scripture today would do its proper work in us. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to know the danger of sin and to flee to Christ through the Spirit day after day, trusting in him. We thank you for the sweet work of the Spirit in our lives. We pray that you would strengthen us uh, for the fighting marathon we have to run until finally you rescue us from this sin-filled world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.